And I'm reading from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 to 20. Let's talk of Joseph's dreams. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheath rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and all your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing their flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with all the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. While Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But he saw him, they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. This is the word of our Lord. It would be really helpful this series if you, um, if you bring your Bible to church um, because on most weeks we won't be reading the entire passage uh, but we will be referring to it and so if you've got the scriptures in front of you it would be really helpful to have as a reference uh, particularly as we either look back or look forward so let me just encourage you. Uh, to to have God's Word in front of you as we uh, journey through this part of Genesis. In the Bible, the image of being rescued 
and redeemed by God from a metaphorical pit of our sin and shame or from the grave is a strong reoccurring salvation theme. It is particularly prominent in the Psalms. Psalm 41 to 2 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and myrrh. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Psalm 31 to 3 says, I will exalt you, O Lord, for you lifted me up out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. O Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit. Psalm 69, 13 to 15. I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favour, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the myrrh. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. There are many, many more examples that extend well beyond the Psalms, but this is an image that so many of the biblical writers wanted us to have in mind of what it's like to be saved. The pit is a place of isolation, decay, darkness, shame and despair. And here in Genesis 37, it is that image of going down into the pit that dominates the first part of this story of Joseph's life. As we're going to see over the coming weeks, the story of Joseph is a salvation story. It's a story about the great and sovereign plans of God for the salvation of Joseph and his family and the Israelites and many, many more, including those of us who are saved here today. It's a story about God working in the ordinary and even evil circumstances of life to bring about His good purposes. That's where this story is headed. We must keep in mind, though, however, that even though we know the outcome of this particular story, Joseph didn't. And so we would do well to prevent our minds from so quickly skipping ahead to the happy ending of the story that we are familiar with. You see, the journey before the journey down, sorry, before the journey up, there is a journey down. And it's important that we sit in that place. That's what chapter 37 is all about. Joseph winds up in a metaphorical, uh, physical pit. And then he is taken down to Egypt. And at the end of the chapter, we see Jacob, Joseph's father, in absolute despair and agony over the perceived loss of his son. There's this spiralling downward uh, rhythm and theme of chapter 37. The story starts in a surprising place in verse 2, where we read, This is the account of Jacob's family line. Whilst this story will focus largely on Joseph, Joseph being, let's say, the hero of the story, and his journey from the pit to the palace, 
the writer states that this is in fact the story of Jacob. The writer had done the same thing in chapter 25 when he began to tell the story of Jacob. This is the account, he writes in verse 19, of Abraham's son, Isaac. It tells us something about ancient thought. You and I, as modern people, particularly those of us who come from a Western cultural background, have a deeply ingrained set of assumptions based on the obsession of the individual. The story of my life is the story of the things that I do, the achievements that I'm responsible for, the career that I build, all of those things that get added to my CV. But the writer of Genesis sees things quite differently. The story of Isaac is actually the story of his sons. And the story of Jacob is the story of his sons. According to the writer of Genesis, and according, in fact, to the rest of the Bible, you and I are not autonomous individuals with our own self-contained stories. In my own case, the story of Joel's life is actually partly written on the pages of Brendan and Andrew and soon-to-be number three's lives, as well as all kinds of other people who are not part of my biological family that I end up having some sense of responsibility for or influence over. It's a very different way of viewing life, isn't it? The story plays out in three primary scenes. The first one is this sense of family tension about Joseph's dreams in verses 2 to 11. We then have the scene of violence and betrayal by Joseph's brothers. And then we are left with Jacob's grief over Joseph's perceived death. To begin with, the writer gives us a bit of a character sketch of Joseph. And it's not an overly positive one. The first thing that we're told about him is that he was a young man of 17. To us, this is either a fairly neutral or maybe even a positive piece of information. When I read that Joseph was 17, I'm immediately taken back to my 17th birthday, when I got my license. And when you're 17, you want to make your mark on the world. And for me, I wanted to make my mark on a girl. Her name is Bron. And on my 17th birthday, I was so keen to pass my driver's license uh, exam because it would mean that I could then take her out for our first date, which I did, and got our first kiss, which was fantastic. (laughs) So when I think about turning 17, I have so many good memories. Uh, In in today's culture, um, youth, in in today's youth-orientated culture, when you are 17, you are at the prime of your life. You have so much potential ahead of you. You are ready to make your mark on the world. But the writer of Genesis and the original audience who read this saw things very differently. For them, status and authority and significance actually went with age. The leaders of a community were the elders of a community. So for a, so for a, a son, for a 17-year-old, 
to announce to his family, majority who are older than him, that they would bow down to him. In fact, his mother and father would bow down to him. Is not only just an annoying younger brother, it is unthinkable arrogance. And the readers would have got this. Also, to the original reader of this text, the dreams are very significant. Even though there is no mention of God in this text, He is most certainly involved. In the ancient world, dreams were understood as messages from God. They were messages from the divine. And in particular, if there was a double dream, if there were two dreams that had the same message or theme, then it was a confirmation that whatever that dream was would in fact come to pass. And so for the reader, they see this dream and they see the divine hand at work in the story. But it's not just the dream It's also the dobbing in verse 2, the bad report that Joseph brings to his father about his brothers. The word that is used here is a Hebrew word that is always used throughout the Old Testament with negative connotations associated of falsely accusing or incriminating someone. And if that's not bad enough, the fact that Joseph is the favoured one, and not just privately, but overtly publicly. The famous colourful robe was a constant reminder that Joseph was the apple of his father's eye. It not only distinguished him as as favoured, but in fact came with the associations of firstborn privilege, including a double portion of the inheritance. Favouritism had become a generational sin in Jacob's family. You might recall that Isaac loved Um, Esau more than Jacob, and Rebekah loved Jacob more than Esau, and that you might recall that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. There's this ongoing favoritism that runs through the family. So our first impression of Joseph is not a particularly good one, but we don't get We don't just get a picture of Joseph in the first 11 verses. We're also introduced to his brothers and the dynamics of the family. And it's a particularly dysfunctional one, isn't it? The narrator goes out of his way to tell us that the brothers of Joseph are not just his brothers, but they are his half-brothers. And this evokes all the sad and messy history of the previous chapters, the story of Jacob and his various wives and concubines. It's a, messy, it's a messy story. It's a story of competitiveness and rivalry and favoritism. And now it's playing itself out all over again in the next generation. What has also become clearly evident is how enraged Joseph's brothers are towards him. The writer goes to great lengths to stress the jealousy that the brothers have against their younger brother. In verse 4, we read, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. In verse 5, they hated him all the more. And then in verse 8, they hated him all the more. It's not as if the brothers went from dislike to hatred. They began at hatred and it just keeps spiralling down and down and down. And when hatred takes a grip 
of a person's heart and it is left unchecked, it will, it will inevitably lead to an act of violence. And that is exactly where our story heads. The next scene starts with Joseph's brothers out grazing the flocks while Joseph remains home with dad. This smells very much like preferential treatment. Perhaps Jacob was trying to be protective, but that would seem unlikely because Jacob sends Joseph out to check up on how his other sons are doing, assuming that his son, Joseph, would return to him in time unharmed. The journey to Shechem would have taken five days by foot, not a short distance by anyone's standard. If you go back and have a look at 34, it becomes evident why Jacob is concerned for his sons. Shechem was not a good place for them to be. Some really bad things had gone down in chapter 34 and it is likely that Jacob's sons were on Shechem's most wanted list. Once arriving at Shechem, Joseph gets lost and discovers from a stranger that his brothers have moved on to Dothan. And so the journey away from his father's protective care goes further and further away. Jacob's decision to send his number one son out on this perilous pastoral care visit would become a decision that would come back to haunt him for years. I can only imagine how many what-if conversations Jacob had with himself after the looming incident. The downward spiral of anger and hatred the brothers had for Joseph, continues to run its course. And so all that it took was for the brothers to get an eye of this colourful long-sleeved coat from a distance and murder was on their minds and in their hearts. In verses 23 to 24 we read, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Having deposed of Joseph in the pit, the brothers sit down to eat a meal as if nothing has happened. The coat which was given in immense love was stripped in immense hatred. Stripped of his coat, dignity, and lying in a dark, deep pit of absolute terror. The brothers probably felt as if they had well and truly deposed, disposed of Daddy's dream boy. But God had other plans. What was a pure act of evil would be used for the salvation of many, but not without great pain, distress and uncertainty first. What's interesting and one thing that the commentators highlight is in the first part of this text in chapter 37, Joseph is overtly vocal. He is proudly sharing his dreams with his family. But in this second part of the text, where the violence is committed against Joseph, where Joseph is abused, he is silent, he is voiceless. 
Joseph is abandoned and doesn't even have a voice in this context. Later on in the text, we will in fact come to learn that Joseph was incredibly distressed, as you would expect, and pleaded for his brothers to give him his life. But at this point, the author chooses not to include that in the detail of chapter 37. Joseph is a suffering servant. Reuben and Judah, Joseph's older brothers, play a role in preserving his life. Reuben, the eldest, prevents the vengeful brothers from killing Joseph before tossing him into the pit. And then Judah comes up with a plan to sell him to the Ishmaelites, who were on their way to Egypt. So, whilst at this point in the story, Joseph is still alive, a trip down to Egypt is not exactly a great prospect either. Remember that the first people to read this text saw Egypt as a place of, of bondage, a place of shame, a place of chains. And so the fact that Joseph has gone down to Egypt is not exactly a great prospect either. The journey downward very much continues. The story then reverts back to Jacob, and in a somewhat ironic and interesting twist, Jacob's deceit had come full circle. Joseph's brothers take his coat and cover it with the slain blood of a goat uh, to cover up the betrayal of Joseph. This coat that was given in love and symbolised a father's cherished love for his son, which was also equally poisoned with jealousy, came back to Jacob, stained with blood, as the only thing left to remind him of his son. Many years ago, Jacob himself had killed a goat to disguise himself and lied, pretending to be Esau, in order to receive Isaac's blessing. And now a goat was being used to deceive and conceal against Jacob, the deceiver. What a bitter twist this is. Sadly, Jacob is reaping what he sowed. And so the paragraph ends with this horrible, tragic picture of Jacob spiralling down toward his grave in misery, paralleling the downward spiral or journey of his son Joseph down to the pit. Verse 35 says, All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. But the story doesn't finish there. Because in verse 36, uh, there is this one last little reminder to us, the readers, that the story hasn't finished. In verse 36, we read, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. It's not a particularly positive verse. If anything, it's another downward spiral for Joseph as far as he is concerned. But it's a reminder to the reader that Joseph is still alive. Therefore, the dream is still alive. The dreamer and his dreams are not dead. 
What can we learn from Genesis 37 today? What implications does it have for our lives? Well, firstly, Genesis is no stranger to dysfunctional families. Time and time again, we see the effects of sin playing out in all kinds of destructive ways in family relationships and the devastating effect that this has. Without labouring the point, I just feel that this is so instructive. It ought to remind us from, that right from the beginning of time, due to the reality of sin, deception, favouritism, lying, cheating and hatred, uh, dysfunction, have, dysfunction has entangled countless families. I am certain that within this room alone, we could tell several stories of family breakdown, family loss, family hurt, pain, trauma, deception and regret. I would have my own story to add to that mix. Clearly, this is not God's design. It's not His will, it's not His intention that families would break down and suffer from hatred or deception or abuse. And God's heart breaks over every single situation. But what it says to me is that we should not judge. We should not judge the circumstances, the situation of our fellow brothers and sisters that find themselves in family dysfunction. Human relationships are complex and the power of generational patterns and behaviour cannot be overstated. We see this playing out in Jacob's life. So aside from the fact that uh, Joseph was born to Rachel, Rachel who Jacob dearly loved and worked seven years for only to be tricked and given Leah, aside to the fact that Jacob was born to Joseph in his older years. Joseph was reared by a father who had modelled deception and favouritism. None of us are disconnected from the generational string and pattern of our family of origin. And so you can't just look at an individual in isolation because there's a whole story behind their behaviour. And we are so quick to judge when we don't know the whole picture. Only God does. And that is why I've said that only God is justified to judge. Our role is to love. We need to be sympathetic, understanding, and frankly, unsurprised at family dysfunction. It breaks God's heart. It breaks my heart and it breaks your heart. But what Genesis shows us is that this has been going on right from the beginning of time. And God's goodness and God's grace is sovereign over all of it. Secondly, 
Whilst we know how the story ends for Joseph, we don't know how our story is going to end. We might be in a particularly challenging situation right now. If we're not, we might be about to step into one. And, and, and if that doesn't happen, then the likelihood is that we are closely connected to someone who's in a very difficult situation. The story serves as a reminder that even when things feel so totally out of control and evil is prevailing, that God is still sovereign and God is firmly in charge. The Joseph story spoke to Israel of God's sovereign guidance of his people and of his covenant faithfulness. This story gave them comfort that no matter how dark the circumstances, God was still in control. The story of Joseph offers us comfort in difficult times. God is not absent. In the middle of your story, you may not be able to see what God is doing, but that does not mean that He is not there working things out according to His purposes for those who are loved by Him and are called by Him. Genesis 37 teaches us that even when evil seems to rule the day, God is in control. And finally, the story of Joseph is a story like all of Scripture that points us in one way or another to Christ. In the case of this first chapter of Joseph's story, it's a reminder that the ultimate story of going down to the pit and up again is the story of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus crucified on the cross, buried and resurrected. Except in this case, it wasn't because of his sin or his folly or his pride, but ours. And it was his death and resurrection that purchased the grace and the forgiveness that released and set you and I free, that lifted you and I up from our pit. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Loving God, loving Father, Jesus, Son, Holy Spirit, you are sovereign. You are in control. You are across and above and beyond the mess and the complexity and the brokenness of all humanity. And we come to you, Lord, recognizing our great need for you, acknowledging that you indeed are in control. And I pray this morning, Lord, that by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, you might lift each one of us to see you in your goodness and in your glory, to fix our eyes on you, to keep our eyes fixed firmly on you, particularly during the storms of life, when things seem to be so out of control and out of sync, when we don't understand, when we can't 
see your hand at work. We want to trust that you are in control, that you are sovereign, and that your goodwill will be achieved. God, I just ask for your grace to be upon each precious soul here this morning. Particularly, Lord, we lift up those who are going through a difficult time at the moment, who find themselves caught up in family dysfunction in one way or another. Lord, thank you for your grace, thank you for your love, and thank you for your word, which is so authentic and vulnerable and helps us see that as painful and and heartbreaking as these situations are, they're not new to you. And that, Lord, you were sovereign over it then, you are still sovereign over it all now. We place our lives, our circumstances, our yesterdays, our todays, and our tomorrows into your hands. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Joel. It's great, isn't it?